You're listening to Sky Women's Health Podcast, your evidence-based resource for women's health and wellness, exploring the holistic principles of osteopathy, integrating mind, body, and spirit, designed to empower you as your own healthcare advocate and help you live your best life. I'm your host, board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Carolyn Moyers. Welcome to Sunday Morning Sky Community. I'm going to start this morning with this lovely thank you letter that I got with a Christmas card in the mail. It's so sweet. And then we're going to dive into your most common hormone therapy questions and end with a little bit about gut health and supplements and when to take your supplements, which is part of those common questions that I get in the office. So this letter came from the lovely Heather who sent me a thank you note, a handwritten thank you note with a Christmas card saying, thank you for helping me in this year in a much better place than when it started. Perimenopausal, oh, sorry, perimenopause had chewed me up and spit me out when I came to see you in the summer. I was in a bad place. You listened, gave me hope and helped me see I wasn't going crazy. I have now sent five women your way. I talk about perimenopause all the time in hopes we can begin to bust the myth that we have to live lives enduring these horrible symptoms. I just wanted to wish you and your staff, who are all wonderful, by the way, a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you. This means the world. And I think it's so important because one of those common questions that I hear in the office is, do you think I'm crazy? And the answer is no, I do not think you're crazy. Not in the least. So the common symptoms of perimenopause and menopause, I know can leave women feeling chewed up and spit out as she mentioned, you know, I recently had a girlfriend who is also a physician reach out and say, perimenopause is ruining my life. What can I do? And I was able to connect her with a menopause specialist in her state and she got seen and she chose to go on Nuvarine, which is a oral, or I'm sorry, which is a combined hormonal contraceptive ring. And it's working great for her and it's managing her symptoms. So I know we've talked about in prior um, podcast episodes that you can do either contraception, your typical contraception or traditional hormone therapy in that perimenopausal phase, depending on what's right for you. And that just takes a detailed counseling um, with a, a menopause expert. Now, in regards to that list of symptoms. If you're following me on at Dr. Carolyn Moyers, you probably have seen, we're doing this little advent calendar with the symptoms of menopause and they can include heavy periods, palpitations, your um, funny or fast heartbeat, poor sleep or difficulty sleeping, itchy or dry skin, anxiety or panic attacks, weight gain, memory problems or difficulty concentrating, loss of interest in things, hot flushes or night sweats, irritable or rage, hair loss, ringing in the ears, headaches, muscle or joint pain, pins and needles or crawling skin sensation, breathing issues, snoring, sleep apnea, gut problems, fatigue, urinary problems, 
depression or unhappy, like listless mood, vaginal dryness, dry eyes, overwhelm, loss of libido or arousal. I mean, is there any part of our body that this doesn't impact? So do I think you're crazy? No. Do I think that your symptoms are related to another medical condition and may require multiple specialists to see to get it all worked out? Maybe, but maybe it's just menopause and maybe it just requires the replacement of estrogen. So we have a couple of phases and I'm just, I know we've talked about this in pre, prior episodes, but I'm just going to quickly state we have different phases of our, our journey in perimenopause are those years leading up to menopause that on average are 7.4 years up to a decade in women of color. We have menopause, which is that one day in history defined as 12 months without a prior cycle. I know if you're not cycling, this is hard to determine and it would require you know, a collection of symptoms and labs for us to kind of figure out for you. And then the rest of the time is postmenopause. This is where we live. We are in a postmenopausal state and um, there are so many benefits to hormone therapy. Yes, there are some risks such as a blood clot or a stroke. Those are quite rare. Um, but if you have had those or have a propensity to those, then you may not be a great candidate. And we have a podcast episode on normal non-hormonal options um, for you to review. Um, but okay. Do I think you're crazy? No. Do I think mental health is really important in perimenopause? Yes. Or menopause? Yes. Because we just saw that there are significant mood changes and, um, you know, depressed lack of interest in things, et cetera. So I do think mental health and mental health, um, therapists and counselors are a huge part of, menopausal care. And that's why in our new Sky Women's Health membership, this is coming. You will be getting a intake with a clinical psychologist. Also, I'm going to pull up real quick. And the NAMS 2022 hormone therapy position statement, they talk about depressive symptoms and how they worsen in the transition through menopause. The evidence is mixed as to whether depression disorders are more common during menopause transition related to pre-menopause, but most women who present with depressive disorders during menopause transition are women with a history of depression before the menopause transition, and women with a history of depression are at higher risk of recurrence during the menopause transition. So this is very important for us to kind of include in this looking at options such as cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. There's even some new um, cool techniques that are helping to reset neurons, especially trauma-informed that are losing, using rapid eye movement. So there are a lot of cool things um, being done for this. But the thing that I find really interesting is that basomotor symptoms increase the risk of elevated depressive symptoms. Estrogen therapy shows some efficacy in the management of depression in midlife women. The antidepressive effect of estrogen therapy applies to perimenopausal women with and without vasomotor symptoms. So we think that vasomotor symptoms actually increase that risk of elevated depressive symptoms, but they're saying in the perimenopausal phase, it may help those even who are not having vasomotor symptoms. There's some evidence that estrogen therapy has antidepressive effects on similar of similar magnitude to that observed with antidepressant um, agents when administered to depressed 
perimenopausal women with or without vasomotor symptoms, so hot flushes and night sweats and sleep disturbance. It doesn't show that estrogen therapy is effective in treatment of depressive disorders in postmenopausal women. So there's still a lot of research that we need. Speaking of, oh my goodness, ladies, did you see that um, a bill was brought to light? Let me pull this up. Uh, okay, so last year, the NIH um, uh, allocated only 10.8% of its $45 billion budget to women's health research, even though women are over half of the U.S. population. And menopause is a universally experienced life stage, and it remains widely misunderstood. And we've talked about in the past why that is, miseducation, et cetera. A lot of fear-based um, and trying to control women's bodies. Okay, but the Menopause Research and Equity Act of 2023, this just went down last week, championed by Representative Yvette Clark, aims to shift that narrative. It calls for a multidisciplinary team to assess menopause research status and recommend crucial new studies. So this is very exciting in our world. All right, back to your common questions. Okay, how long will I need to take hormone therapy? So we talked about this a little bit in episode 141. So if you want some more details, you can go back and listen to that. But essentially, you know, it used to be shortest or lowest effective dose for the shortest period of time. Well, how do I know what the shortest period of time is? I've walked into a PCP's office before, marketing and discussing relationships and um, referrals. And she said, oh, I've got somebody I need to send you. She's 65. She needs to come off for hormone therapy. Just because you've turned 65, just because your age of retirement does not mean that you can, or that you should come off of your hormone therapy. Like we are, we do not need to shrivel up and die. If you are doing well on your hormone therapy, there is no reason that you have to come off of it. Now, could you say, well, I'm well past my, the average age of menopause being 51, right? And past the average age of menopause, maybe it's time for me to come off of my hormone therapy. I haven't had a hot flush or night sweat in ages. Sure. Discuss that with your menopause provider and discuss whether you want to try to wean down and see if those symptoms uh, present themselves again, because you can always go back up. Benefits of hormone therapy usually generally outweigh the risk for healthy women with bothersome menopausal symptoms who are younger than 60 and within 10 years of menopause. So remember, that's kind of the time frame that we're always talking about with the average vasomotor symptoms lasting for 7.4 years. And for many others, up to 10 years, there was a Swedish study where women age older than 85, 16% reported hot flushes at least several times a week. And up to 8% of women continued to have hot flushes for 20 years or longer after menopause. So there's important questions related to how long of duration of hormone therapy should you know, when, when should this end? And I think that the, the information is mixed, but as long as you do not have cardiovascular disease, you know, an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, including stroke or, um, blood clots. So you can go back and listen to episode, um, 140 that talked about, um, the genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And I know you guys have heard me talk about, um, this a lot, but in um in midlife in the lack of estrogen the effects that it has on the vaginal epithelium are are phenomenal right i mean the changes that go on and this can lead to 
painful intercourse. This can lead to recurrent urinary tract infections. This can lead to vaginal infections. This can lead to an urgency or painful um, vulva. So the genitourinary symptoms of menopause um, are, are not um, taken lightly and probably 40 to 50% of my patients are on both systemic estrogen and vaginal estrogen. Well, you may say why sometimes the systemic estrogen doesn't have that effect or have enough of an effect on the vaginal epithelium. So, you know, systemic hormone therapy commonly prescribed for managing those vasomotor symptoms, um, Vaginal estrogen is actually specifically targeted for treating the localized symptoms, such as the dryness and irritation and discomfort. And they can be used both together because the local vaginal estrogen actually is not systemically absorbed. So it's not going to raise your blood levels. And there are, um, you know, there's a ring, there's um, suppository, there's cream, there's um, tablet. There are many options for giving you the vaginal estrogen. And if you find it confusing, if you're doing a transdermal estrogen patch that you're going to change twice weekly, then you could just do your vaginal estrogen on those days as well to keep it consistent, just to kind of simplify things. Now, your progesterone, you're going to take at night because it has a sedative effect. Take your progesterone orally at night. I tend to give it in a continuous fashion. Yes, you can take it for just 10 to 14 days out of the month and have the protection to the endometrium that you need. However, you may with induce a withdrawal bleed. So I had a patient the other day who was like, oh, you're not going to be happy with me. I'm having a period now. And when I listened to her story, first of all, she is early menopause. Um, and so by giving her hormone therapy, we may have just kickstarted her period. However, she is only taking her progesterone three weeks out of the month. So she is inducing a cycle. So something to definitely um, take into consideration and talk with your provider about. But in terms of your hormone therapy, like I know it all can all seem overwhelming when you're like, I'm trying to figure out how to take care of my mind and my body at this phase in life when there's also all of these other pressures in life, right? With maybe it's aging parents and maybe it's work or maybe it's kids and all the things that are going on. So it can be overwhelming. So something to really talk with your provider, see how you can simplify your hormone therapy regimen so that you can be compliant because it works if you take it. <laughs> what are common symptoms or side effects of hormone therapy? So this is a common one, and we actually have a podcast episode specifically on that, and it is in episode um, 137, I believe. And common side effects could be breast tenderness, vaginal bleeding, spotting, some abdominal bloating. Typically, this is the first couple of weeks to months, and it will resolve spontaneously. Um, But if, of course, if it's persistent or bothersome, or we're talking about new heavy vaginal bleeding, then you need to let your provider know. And this is why I think it's so important for you to check in with your menopause provider regularly, especially in the first couple of months after starting hormone therapy to make sure we're all on the same page and things are going well. Do we need to change the dose or there ongoing, ongoing or a return of symptoms so that we can get you kind of established on a stable hormone therapy regimen? All right. Next question. Oh, when should I take my supplements? Yeah, this is a common one. And what supplements should I be taking? So, you know, it, it's uncommon that I across the board say everybody needs to be taking this, but there are some that are incredibly helpful for 
menopause, and that would include magnesium, uh, vitamin D, omega-3, and of course, fiber, and then the amount of protein. So we're talking more like about, you know, your whole dietary, um, what we consume, right? And so the more whole foods, fruits and vegetables that we consume, honestly, um, the better, <laughs> the better we will be, um, the, the more, the more real foods that we consume. And that's the problem with our foods in the United States and our culture is that, you know, so much of what we're consuming doesn't even look like food that's like grown from the ground now. Um, so protein, 30 grams of protein for breakfast in the morning is kind of what I recommend because it, it helps you feel more satiated. You're going to feel more full. You're going to have better glycemic control or blood glucose control, and you're going to consume fewer calories in the day with a goal of around 80 to hundred, depending on your body size of protein daily. And why do I say that? Because we lose muscle mass. We have, you heard of sarcopenia. We lose muscle mass. This naturally occurs in perimenopause and menopause, specifically in that menopausal transition. Okay. Magnesium glycinate. Magnesium can be anxiety relieving. It helps with sleep and cognition with our goal being around 550 uh, milligrams a day, food and your, um, your food and your supplement together, right? So you don't have to get it all in a supplement if you're eating foods that are rich in magnesium. This can be neuroprotective. It helps with sleep and it can lead to less chronic inflammation. There's actually a study that showed um, if you're getting 550 milligrams of magnesium daily in your 40s, it was associated with a slower aging of the brain later in life. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> foods that are rich in magnesium, spinach, quinoa, almonds, dark chocolate, avocado, yogurt, edamame. I like all those. All right. The other big one is fiber. Gut changes during perimenopause are real. And our goal is around 25 grams of fiber a day. And you may have to work up to that if you've had a very fiber poor diet um, in recent years. So more vegetables, more nuts, more foods like bananas, avocados, spinach, leafy. Those are all rich in and fiber, and it actually helps to grow good gut bacteria. And there was a recent um, publication from the Menopause Society talking about what's in your gut could be aggravating your menopausal symptoms. And I thought this was really interesting. It says over the last decade, a lot has been learned about what a person's poop says about their overall health. Factors such as frequency of defecation and stool consistency can signify a number of health problems. So there's a recent study published online in Menopause, the Journal of the Menopause Society, and it talks about as life expectancies continue to lengthen, the reality is that many women spend 30 to 40% of their lives in postmenopause because up to 80% of women experience some menopause symptoms. Chances are good that a woman's quality of life is being affected for some period of time as a result of the menopause transition. For example, the average duration of hot flashes, you've heard me say this, 7.4 years, although some studies have shown that these symptoms can bother women as long as 10 years or more. Sex hormones or lack of them in the case of menopause have been shown to affect the female nervous, uh, nervous system. Gut microbiota have also been shown to influence the nervous system, especially with regards to how women respond to stress. The relationship between sex hormones and gut microbiota is well documented. Not only do gut microbiota play an important role in the metabolism of female sex hormones, but sex hormones influence gut microbiota. 
So this is a really interesting that our food, there's a strong connection between what we eat and our gut health. Um, I mean, it's, it's not interesting. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, right? So for instance, like eating um, broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, these are a powerhouse in menopause and can help decrease hot flushes and um, inflammation. So very interesting, but all to say fiber is important. Okay. We talked about magnesium. We talked about fiber. We talked about protein, vitamin D a thousand to 5,000 international units daily. My goal is for your vitamin D level to be somewhere between 40 and 60 nanograms per deciliter. This happens so often. And I don't know if it's just perimenopause and menopausal women, because I really see it across the board that we are so much more vitamin D deficient than ever before, whether it's that we're putting on more sunscreen or we're getting less light exposure, you know, we get vitamin D from food, from supplements and from the sun. Um, and so my kids were running around yesterday and, um, my five-year-old spent majority of the day outside and he was like, I'm getting lots of vitamin D. Yes. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, fish is the best source of vitamin D3 and you ask many foods are fortified with vitamin D, cow's milk, plant-based milk, yogurt, breakfast cereals, orange juice, healthier breakfast cereal and orange juice and perimenopausal and just isn't in our repertoire. Okay. Not going to work for us. So things like trout, sockeye salmon, sardines, egg, beef liver, these are all foods that are rich in vitamin D3. However, most of us are not eating those on a daily basis. And so depending on what your blood level is, you may need, your doctor may recommend a different dosing, but a thousand to 5,000 international units daily is kind of typically what I recommend. And why is it important? Well, Lack of vitamin D isn't quite as obvious in adults, like the signs and symptoms might be very vague, um, but they can be fatigue, bone pain, muscle weakness, aches, or muscle cramps, and mood changes like depression. I seriously have seen individuals who thought that they were uh, menopausal or losing their mind, one or the other, and it was a vitamin D deficiency and we replaced it and they're thriving and doing really well. Okay. Take your magnesium glycinate at night. I forgot to say that because it helps with sleep. It's going to help with guts, um, health. And so we're going to take the magnesium glycinate, think rest and digest magnesium glycinate. We take at night. Vitamin D is associated with the sun. It's the sunshine vitamin. We're going to take it in the morning, um, typically with a meal because it's a fat soluble vitamin. And, and also back to um, the fiber and the gut health, we talked about how it helps to grow good gut bacteria, also helps with constipation that happens in menopause, um, but it helps to stabilize blood sugar and tends to reduce um, blood cholesterol and get better absorption of nutrients. So there's a lot of reasons why we should focus on um, our diet, the what we put in our body. We have to think about it as fueling our body as we go into menopause. I hope you found this episode helpful. Welcome to Sundays. I hope you have a cup of coffee and your stretchy pants on. Have a great day. What is Princess Leia's gynecologist? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Does <laughs> that make you laugh? <laughs> what kind of doctor is mommy? Gynecologist. Yeah, that's right. What's the best thing about mommy? You snuggle me every night. What's the worst thing about mommy? <laughs> 
you're you're getting meaner as you get older. <laughs> it's true. Thank you for joining me on Sky Women's Health Podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with our latest content. This episode is proudly sponsored by Sky Women's Health, your go-to destination for midlife gynecology in DFW, specializing in perimenopause, menopause care, sexual medicine, and a unique thing we offer is osteopathic manipulative treatment for pregnant and postpartum patients. While we are nobody's primary OB, we collaborate with your OB to provide you comfort through your pregnancy. Stay tuned for more empowering discussions. Until next time, be well.